Welcome to this episode of Temple Beth Am's Are You Coming Back? Personal, candid conversations with Jewish thought leaders across the country on the future of Jewish practice. Hosted by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. Rabbi Melissa Skolton Gutierrez and I come from the same place. We went to the same small synagogue, Beth Tefila, in East County, San Diego. We went to the same public high school, Valhalla, and we both wound up in the rabbinate. We've stayed digitally connected through the years, and we sat down together, she from her home in the Atlanta area, to talk about what life has been like for her these past several months, this year of pandemic, reflecting on what life is like amid COVID. Stay tuned for this reunion episode of Are You Coming Back? Where I've started this conversation with a lot of people, um, and what feels particularly poignant on this day when we're recording it now, which happens to be March 14th, um, is to take me back a year. And this weekend really is exactly a year. So take me back a year ago to a Shabbos meal, um, a spiritual gathering, a Shabbat morning, a holiday, something like that. And tell me what were things like for you and your family then pre-COVID? So it's so funny because when I think about a year ago, um, and I think about shul a year ago, particularly, I'm reminded that the last time I was in shul on Shabbat morning was also um, the Shabbat morning where we completed Masachat um, Brachot in Dafyomi, um, which coincidentally is the last Masachat of Dafyomi, which I actually finished um, because since then I don't have the brain space um, to learn Dafyomi the way that I, the way that I want to learn Dafyomi. There are lots of approaches to me. Like I want to sit down and I want to learn a Daf um, and, and I don't have the brain space. So just as, as an interesting aside to that, um, but it was lovely, right? We were in shul. Shul was so full. There was already a sense of COVID by that point in time. Like it had definitely landed. Um, it had landed in New York. Um, my friend's, I came to Atlanta from Riverdale, um, which is one of the cities that was initially um, significantly impacted by the, the initial closures. Um, I had friends who were already in, friends who were in quarantine, who were members of the Young Israel of North Riverdale, friends in S- with kids in SAR who were in quarantine. And we went to Shulam and it was already weird, but we were still there, right? We were still there together. We said the Hadran, right? The the series of tefillot that one says right at the end of reading a Masachet of Gemara. Um, and the line, the line that sort of repeats is, right, right? Like, I finished you and I will return to you, basically. And that line is so resonant for me, right? That the last time I was in shul, I was saying it about the Gemara. I, but really, it feels on some way like I was saying it about shul. Um that's what I think about when I think about a year ago. Um, a year ago for my family in shul was the four of us walking to shul together in the morning um, and uh, dropping the kids off in groups where they, you know, spent the morning hanging out with their friends and learning and singing and doing kids to feel and playing on the playground, everybody touching and hugging and playing. <laughs> um, I'm sure my friend, my son was sharing, uh, candy with his friends because that's what they did actually I have a memory I don't 
know if it was that weekend. Maybe it was the weekend before, but of my son's good friend sharing licks of a lollipop with another kid, which now in our brains is like mind boggling. <laughs> but then it was just like mildly gross. Yeah. The Adonalong lollipop, right? Like the reward lollipop in our school. Oh no. You know, right. <laughs> The picture that you're painting is so interesting for a lot of reasons. I love the poignance, poignancy of uh, of the of the hadron and of completing a masechet and the promise to return to it. I'm thinking about that a lot as we pre- prepare for the siyum for the completion of um, Mishnah. We simply do a, a tractate of Mishnah. We're doing Pesachim this year as a group of rabbis for the um, for Tanit B'chorot, for the fast of the firstborn that's coming up for Pesach. And um, thinking about the same thing, thinking about this idea of um, this how unbelievable it is that we've come back again to another siyum, to another year of learning virtually together in preparation for that, thinking about that too. Um, And it also strikes me that the picture that you're painting of this world that you crafted for yourself and the world that you crafted for your family is a world that I know that you crafted. I mean, really, really crafted because you and I both came from a completely different world. We've each crafted it. You and I both come from, you know, a a part of San Diego County that is not built like the villages, certainly in Riverdale, or I don't know what it's like where you are in Atlanta. I certainly know what it's like here in Pico Robertson, Los Angeles. Um, And um, we, we come from this place where it was a beautiful community, but not a community nor a Shabbat um, that looked like, or sounded like this. And, um, what you're what you're painting is a picture of something really precious totally I think my particularly my kids going to groups um has been one of the biggest pandemic losses for me um they're just at my kids are four and seven um have turned both turned four and seven through the course of the pandemic because right after a full year I guess everyone has everyone has had birthdays um through the pandemic at this point Um, but they're at such an, they're at an age where, where that togetherness and that experience of Shabbat is just so, so, so special. Um, we're instilling in them that like, this is what we do, right? We go to shul on Shabbat morning and now we haven't been going to shul on Shabbat morning. And because of the way that we observe Judaism, we are not on screens, right? So they're not even getting virtual groups or virtual Shabbat or anything, um, it's just us. And so some weeks we like sing Shabbat songs with them at home. And some weeks Shabbat just feels like a day without screens and a day without electricity. And like, yeah, we sit after Shabbat lunch and we'll go for a walk, but it doesn't have um, that same special infusion of like community, um, which is such so special about Shabbat. And one of the things which I appreciate most about um, my journey taking me into orthodoxy is that really beautiful Shabbat kihila. Um, that Shabbat morning community and that group of people that you know you're going to see and those people you only see there, right? Those, those super special people in your life that, that that's where they intersect. Um, and that, that also, I guess, would be a loss for, for the adults as well. And I think about it more for my kids, but it is also for the adults. Yeah. Do, do you remember having to explain to your kids for the first time what it would mean to not be going to synagogue? I mean, how have they responded to that? Um, I think because it happened at the same time that they stopped going to school, um, it, 
it was just like, it was very matter of fact. Um, the school was very matter of fact about closing. We were very matter of fact about school closing. Um, and they were like, okay with it. They were bummed. And I think the early weeks we like did a lot more, right? Like they, right. We did a lot of, um, touch about style services, you know, on Saturday mornings. And at some point as it became the norm that we were home together, um, that particular piece of the experience, um, really sort of faded away. I think that they've also forgotten the rhythm of groups, um, of that sort of, you know, kids, youth services, Tat Shabbat, whatever you want to call it. Um, but that experience sort of has faded for them, I think. One of the things that uh, was just a topic of conversation in our house, or also as we were just talking about a dual rabbi household, um, and you and your husband went to um, rabbinical school, you were in rabbinical school at the same time, which is a um, pretty interesting thing. I was also in rabbinical school at the same time as my um, husband. I don't know if you want to uh, talk about that at all, but something that was a, top of co- a topic of a conversation re- recently in our house was that um, our daughter is back in school in, in person, our five-year-old um, in school that's mostly outdoors, uh, and they are um, uh, this, this past... Uh, Saturday, she surprised us by joining in with the full first paragraph of Birkat Amazon, of the blessing after the meal. And we had a wonderful talk, my husband and I, about how we have managed to outsource still a great deal of what we've needed to teach to our kid to to day school because since we don't have a Z moon in our house this year ever, since we never have a group of people around our table, we're not really saying Birkat Hamazon at home. We're not saying these blessings out, um, out loud at the table, right? We just say them to ourselves quietly at our own pace. We're not saying them out loud at the table with a group of people, certainly not like singing them raucously. Um, I'm sure we Maybe at the beginning, we intentionally did it out loud a few times, but um, we're just not. Um, So I wonder, you know, what it's like for you being um, I'm hearing you describe these these singing sessions at home. Like what sort of efforts are you putting into rabbying for your kids at home? And what sort of guilt are you carrying about that, too? Because I know we do. (laughs) Oh, so much guilt. Um, So we similarly outsource a lot of our children's Jewish education. Thank God my kids' day school has also been open um, this whole school year. There have been like isolated blips where like a class has been quarantined, um, but overwhelmingly they have been in school this year, um, which has been amazing. And we are so grateful for all of the work that our school has done. And I can't talk about it without saying that explicitly. Um, And yeah, like it's hard. I think even in a normal year, there's a lot, right? rabbinic parents are outsourcing <laughs> the, the Jewish education of their children. Also because I feel like they learn it differently. They learn it differently when they're learning it with other, with the group of their kids and their friends and it, right. The way that it's taught in school is so special and so unique and so wonderful. Um, and then we get to reinforce it, right? Like, they go to school and they are learning about which brachot you say after which foods, right? And then like, we can give them a plate of food and they'll, and ask them like, or remind them to say their brachot and depending, right, four and seven are different stages in learning 
um, what blessings they're saying before, before they're eating. Um, uh, and we, we have made a commit. We do try very hard to sing, um, at least the first. So my son has learned through the second paragraph of, of your Amazon. And so we make an effort to sing Shiramalo, the Brechel, and then the Noda paragraph out loud. Um, so that he does hear them and it gets reinforced, right? Like this is a thing you're learning at school and it's not just something that happens at school, right? It's something that we, we do at home. And what you learn at school is connected to what we do at home. And there's a reason why that's where you go to school is so that um, you learn the stuff that we do, <laughs> that we do at home. Um, it's actually interesting. So my husband um, is, has, is of Spanish Portuguese um, ancestry. And so he does some things differently than the way that they are taught in school. Um, he says a different Birkat Amazon. Um, and sometimes they'll be like, well, do you want to do Abba's Birkat Amazon? He'll be like, no. Because to him, right, the way he learns it in school is like the way to do it. Um, and so it's fun to like try, how do we balance these things that are um, unique things that happen in our household that are different than what's happening at school and different than what happens when we're in shul or really any other communal space. We don't have a, a Sephardi community around us, particularly that we're connected with or that has practices like our, like what my husband does. I do a weird hybrid. I'll sort of say we have a Sephardi Kanazi household. We've got like a little bit of all of it happening at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it, it isn't an amazing thing because even in his rejection um you know and even in your son's rejection of it um it's an acknowledgement of the pluralism of the existence of jewish traditions no i want to do the one that seems normative right now i want to do the one my friends are doing that my teacher has taught me but he's still learning that there is a uh, pluralism of jewish traditions and that is it's really true cool. when we talk about i have to jump we're talking about pluralism of jewish traditions there's another cool element of that which is that my father also lives with us um, and his, his observance of Judaism also looks different than ours does. Um, and so we've, um, uh, a dear friend of mine, Rabbi Sarah Mulhern uses the phrase, um, people who do meets vote like we do, um, when she talks to her, to her children about the way that they do certain things. Um, and so that's language that I have adopted with permission. Um, and I'll sometimes I'll say like, Papa doesn't, Papa doesn't practice Judaism the same way we do. Papa doesn't observe meets both the same way we do. Or like whatever kid in your class doesn't, doesn't observe meets both the same way that we do. And it's just a way of honoring that like, there are so many approaches to Judaism and it's so wonderful that our tradition is rich and diverse and has space for lots of different approaches and interpretations um because like what is judaism if not like a whole bunch of people figuring out trying to understand and figure out um what practice of it looks like um and i love that i love just leaning into that and finding ways to to lean in yes i i love those descriptives first of all rabbi sarah mulhern is fantastic Amazing. I have to give some space between how many Hartman folk I, I interview at once, but um, <laughs> I but I love I love uh, Sarah as a as a dear friend and uh, and teacher and um, I'm thinking about so uh, so many things about what you just said and and those descriptives. One um, is just um, the wisdom of. Um, the the way that we can improve our relationships with other people by 
talking about them in healthy ways, you know, instead of calling people drug addicts, calling them people who use drugs um, and uh, love deal. We're not describing, you know, people who do meets vote differently than we do in that way. I'm saying that the way that we relate to the extreme to people who are making choices, even that are choices that we wouldn't approve of making, that we find ways of speaking of them as being in certain circumstances or making other choices that we describe them as being in categories where they are not their circumstances and they are not their choices. They are not them. Those are their choices and those are their circumstances. And I was just studying a piece of um, of, of Gemara um, in Pesachim about this. I hope this podcast comes out after I teach this to my board of trustees about this. Um, but it is um, something um, that I hope uh, that I um, that I quote correctly I'm from Shmuel, um, but it's on the concept of Lechem Oni and uh, the concept is on the idea of the vav and the difference between ani and mm. oni, and that ani is a poor person um, in Ketiv Chaser um, with missing the vav, but that oni with the vav is a person who is just afflicted. So that um, that's the vav is just representative there of a burden, right? So when we actually think about Um, you know, reflecting on this idea that sometimes people just have things in their lives. When we think about people and separately the burden or the choices that they carry, we identify them as whole people. And then separately, they have choices, they have burdens, they have circumstances. Um, So I love that you talk about your kids as having this, you know, grandfather in their life and separately like the way that he observes and their relationship that they have with him is not the same thing as the relationship they have with the way that he um observes totally that's beautiful i love Uh, that piece of yeah i'm i'm really digging it and i gotta get through the rest of the page of that gamara too um like you said it's hard to have headspace for it so (laughs) headspace for gamara is like not a thing for me right now and it makes me really sad because i love really love learning gamara so speaking of that and like having headspace for for doing things, I know you've been doing a lot of writing um, in general and trying to do a lot of writing. Can you talk to me about what it's been like to be a writer during yeah. COVID, the projects you're engaged in and how COVID has informed you as a writer? Yeah. So it's interesting because I, for a long time, had a dream that like one day I would write something for e-Jewish philanthropy. Like as a Jewish communal professional, that is like the thing, right? Like, (laughs) or it was to me for many, many years. Like I had it, it, that like, that was like a someday goal. Um, And actually early in COVID um, I was feeling, so I have a passion in speaking about death and dying um, and ritual infusion with that and what that looks like and how that models in other places and also the need to talk about your wishes in advance. And I, this is a whole separate series of conversations. Um, but so early in COVID, actually, I wrote a piece. I like couldn't stop thinking about it. And my writer brain turned on. Um, and I had a million other things to do, but I couldn't, I couldn't focus on anything else because like these words needed out of my head. Um, and I wound up write, writing a piece um, that was published in JFL uh, that was called Framing Our Communal Grief, um, which is really about placing the communal experience of, of COVID into the framework of, of the Jewish mourning rituals. Um, and 
I think I need to write an update because my goal, my, my thoughts about where we would be in a year getting up and walking around um, is interesting, right? Like where I thought and what I, how I was reflecting on the process with was different. Um, and writing that piece reminded me um, that I have this voice that, and I, to, I always feel so I say, but like, I'm a really good writer. Um, and, um, so writing that piece reminded me that, that I have that written voice. Um, and since then I've taken the opportunity to be involved in a few, um, opportunities to learn more about writing, um, and publishing and op-eds and whatnot. I'm currently doing a right to change the world, which is a project, which is one of the programs of the op-ed project, um, which is all about getting more, more voices out, more diverse voices out. The cohort I'm doing is specifically Jewish women professionals out um, into the world. Um, and actually right before I started the op-ed project, also I wrote an op-ed which was published in the Atlanta Jewish Times about abortion as a religious right in Judaism and how that sort of shifts, um, the shifts we need to be making in the communal conversations around abortion and religious views on abortion. Um, and more, right? I'm actually currently right working on something um, about some of what we're talking about, right? What is what does community look like in in the time of COVID? Um, how do we how are we navigating and what are we learning? And I'm not going to tease it too much, um, but really, like virtual community is really powerful. Um, and I I want to really I'm really even thinking about that and what that looks like and what that looks like going forward. I'm really fascinated, maybe even moved by this idea that your Daf Yomi work needed to go on pause at the same time that the writer in you needed to come out. And I'm wondering if those things might be related in you, that there is a piece of your Torah that needed to be expressed at this time in your life, um, in the cycle of the world. It sounds like you have a lot to say right now. It's a really interesting way of, of thinking about it, right? That like I... I had Torah that needs to come out as opposed to, right? Like I'm not in a phase where I can absorb more, right? I have, I have too much to do. I was saying to a friend earlier tonight, I can't learn. I feel like I have to do. Um, and one of the ways that I can do is to write. Um, and one of the things I can do is to be an activist. Um, and so what does it look like? And where are the places I can do that? Um, and trying to lean into that. And I think that you're right, right? There's some balance of like what you can absorb and what you need to give. Um, and I think now I'm in a place where I need to give. And I appreciate that framing. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I, I love that projects like what you're involved in exist, because I think that they help um, to give the people who are in them like frameworks to feel empowered and um, to allow you to say things like I am a writer, I am good at writing. Um, and you mentioned that the, the cohort that you're a part of is specifically there to uplift women's voices. I know you think a lot about women's experiences in general. I think that you've thought a lot about women's experiences of this pandemic, of Jewish women's experiences during this pandemic. Um, I might specifically suggest that we drill down on the experiences of, say, mikvah during the pandemic, but just in, in general, um, where do you think we are in, in women's experiences of this pandemic that we should be thinking about uh, more? Burnout. Mm. Um, I think, um, so I spend a lot of time talking to working moms, um, not totally surprisingly, um, who are feeling very burnt out 
um, by carrying the loads of right work and parenting, um, particularly parents who are not in places where their kids are are back in school. Um, most of my colleagues' children went back to school for the first time since last March, last week. Um, they've been out, they've been working with their kids at home, managing their kids in school for an entire year. Um, and that is really, really intense. And, um, no matter how much we know that like, there are lots of very wonderful, very amazing male spouses in the world. Um, and also the research that has been, been done over the pandemic has shown us that working moms are still winding up carrying the brunt of it. Um, in, in dual, especially in dual working households, right? Women have, more women have also lost their jobs, stunted their careers, gone part-time, um, et cetera. Um, I've been really inspired by programs that have started up to help um, mitigate some of that. Um, so locally, we have a really amazing program locally. It's called Jewish Kids Groups. Um, and it is a, it pre-pandemic was a five-day-a-week after-school religious school. Um, which is amazing. Um, so they flip that Sunday school model on its head. They bust kids from, it was all public school kids. They bust kids from a few specific locations, took them to different spaces, right? Gave them Jewish content. And after the pandemic for this school year, what they did was they created some pods where parents could drop off their kids and they had full day JKG. So they were, there were people to monitor their kids being in school and, um, and moms particularly could keep their jobs and go back to work, um, right? Georgia never shut down the way that other places, including especially California, have done, uh, right? We had like the two weeks to flatten the curve last year. Um, and by May, like every, most things were were reopened um, according to governmental law, right? There are many places which have still, um, to the extent possible, um, had their employees working remotely. I have been very, very lucky to work remotely the entire year. Um, I've actually only been in my office like twice and each time for like 10 minutes, just because there was like something I really needed to pick up that I didn't have, or like they fixed my, I was having to shoot my computer and I like dropped it off, whatever, like very, very, very minimal um, amount of time that I have been in my office in the past year. Um, so I think that like, whatever, that was a total aside. Um, the other thing thinking about women um, is really what women's experience of Judaism looks like, um, right? One of the things you said in the sort of the lead up of this question um, was about mikvah experiences. And I think that's been really huge. Um, there have been certainly women who have felt completely comfortable going to mikvah the entire time. And there have been women who have been terrified of going to mikvah the entire time. Um, in the early days, I had a lot of conversations with people trying to figure out what, what it was going to look like and what were the compromises they were willing to make. Um, I know some people who decided that, who have made up sort of their, their way of coming to terms with that, like they go once, like instead of going every month, they go every like two months and they just don't, right, there are specific things that, that there are some leniencies we can rely on, which I won't get into the details of in this moment. Um, right, but there's some leniencies you can rely on in the month that's the off month, and then you can go again because they're trying, like one of the the principles I've been operating under also personally, which is like I want to keep that space as a space that is as safe as possible for the people who really need to be there, right? Women who are trying to get pregnant, women going through fertility, people that have been dealing with menopause and like super crazy cycles and also emotionally cleansing need it, and people that are going for conversions, right? Those people really need really need to be in that space. 
Um, my marriage is perfectly fine. We're okay. Like it's okay. Um, I can leave that space for the people who need to be there. Um, and on top of that, I'm also the clergy advisory chair for Macomb, which is the Metro Atlanta community, which is um, one of, you know, a dozen or so in the country. I don't know the number off the top of my head and that's not great. Um, but we're one of the one of the community that are across the country. Um, and simultaneously, I was involved in conversations with um, Orthodox women in leadership roles, um, discussing what what we were doing and how we were inspiring and what we were talking about for mikvah Oat um, in the Orthodox community um, and what the level was of remaining, the level of commitment to remaining open and figuring out how to do that safely. Um, those are really cool conversations, right? Because there was a fellow Maharat Musmachot, um, there was women from, there were Yoas and Halacha, there were women in Israel and America. It was really, really diverse conversations and ultimately came out with some like best practice guidelines. Um, from those conversations. And then simultaneously conversations with community who didn't have that same um, need to stay open. Um, where, especially knowing that the Orthodox Mikvaot or the Mikvaot, which more served the Orthodox community, whichever way you want to frame, frame that, um, that those were staying open. Those were not being closed. And so what could we as the community Mikvaot do? Like, should we close? Would we close? Um, and ultimately, most of the community did wind up closing for periods of time. Um, and we, um, have, since most of us um, have reopened um, with limitations, right? So in Macomb, we only allow um, two or at this point, we're allowing two or three conversions a day, or two or three immersions a day, rather. Um, and there has to be a full cycle of our air filter between, between any immersion. Um, right, just trying to keep it like the utmost that we can do, right? When Bate Dean are coming in to take people for conversions, the Beitin is meeting outside, um, no one else is coming in the building, right? How do we finagle to make these things um, nuanced and powerful? And then I'll just throw like one other thing out there and thinking about women's experiences in the pandemic, which is that, especially in Orthodox spaces, um, when you are limited on the number of people, you can have davening physically together, um, the number of people allowed in a space, um, women across the country are being excluded from being able to daven. Um, because when you have a limit of 15 people, well, 10 of those are going to be reserved spaces for the men in order to have a minion. So you've got five only the opportunity even for five women um, left and sometimes less, right? When New York first opened, it was 10 people gathering total. Um, and there were some communities that said, like, if we could only have 10, like, we're not opening. Um, and those people deserve a lot of a lot of um, gladness and goodness and appreciation sent their way. Um, and the, but that wasn't the case everywhere, right? And and it's harder to say, like, with especially back to the the mom factor, right? Like, there isn't groups. So if one person in your household is going to be able to go to go to Tula. More often in Orthodox communities, that winds up being a man um, because of all sorts of assorted um, realities of, and feelings and sentiments about who, who sort of needs, um, needs to be in, um, in person um, and in those davening spaces more. Um, and the responsibility on ensuring that there is a minion, right, which falls upon the men of our community um, and not the women. And the efforts that are being made by the communities who are trying to make sure that there is still space for women, um, even when that doesn't feel like it's really a space for women. 
um, which is hard. It's, it's definitely been a, a an extra an extra hard pain point um, in the pandemic for for women, I would say, especially in the Orthodox community. Uh, it's a it's a very very difficult um, it's a very difficult pain point, and the ethics of triage um, in terms of how to reopen anything are really hard, particularly on those last two topics um, on if the mikvah space is going to be limited, if the prayer space is going to be limited, who do we let in, Who to whom do we give priority in those spaces? Um, it's a really... It's a really tough matter of discussion. Uh, I, I think it's it's really hard to decide and, and really telling that the discussion about the emotional needs of somebody who is menopausal get discussed alongside somebody who might be waiting for conversion. That's really important. Um, I think that it's, uh, to offer another example, we've been having really interesting and difficult discussions around the ethics of whom we give slots to when we reopen the outdoor davening in our community. And do we actually give it to, um, for example, a Kaddish sayer um, over somebody who's waited an entire year because they've had to wait um, uh, for a vaccination and they were in a vulnerable category. And so they actually haven't been to any prayer services while we've been closed. So they maybe perhaps it's been over a year since they've been able to come to services. And so who gets uh, priority? How do we make space for all of them to uh, be there and to make those decisions is difficult. I think what matters um, here is that we're putting the right boards of leadership in place to help make these decisions. And that's not for me to back off of the conversation, but rather lean into it, right? These It's worthy of many, many hours of conversation. But what strikes me is how important it is that there be the right pluripotent, um, well-crafted boards of folk at the heads of each of these organizations who are able to talk through these matters and um, and bring up the really important issues that you've that you floated on all these friends. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And it's really hard for those leaders. And I want to name that. Um, but yes. rabbis are who were not at all trained remotely to do this work um, that are doing this work, heads of schools, um, right? Executive directors of nonprofits, like they don't have, they don't have background in training and the stuff. And so, right. We're lucky in Atlanta, right? The CDC is here. Um, and so we have CDC professionals, right? We have the people that are like on the ground fighting this virus, telling us what to do. Um, so when we are smart enough to step back and listen to them, um, we are really lucky and um, it's really important to like know know your sources and to know your people and to to give a lot of gratitude to everyone that is spending a lot of time making sure that we all open intentionally and safely. Yeah, you know, to go back into the personal world for a minute, I think that that one of the the really huge differences between being a communal leader and worrying about these things in our personal world is that when you make these kinds of decisions in an institution, 
the impact of that decision making um, and the questions of we're making one decision one week and another decision another week are enormous and they're fraught. Whereas when you make the decisions that you make as a family from week to week, it doesn't feel like those are necessarily so outward uh, facing. You know, I've made so many what feels like high stakes decisions as an individual about COVID, but none have felt nearly as high stakes as those conversations that I've had at a professional level. I don't know if it's felt the same for you in terms of professional COVID. The conversation, like for me, like the most high stakes conversation I have had was the discussions around opening and closing my home. Um, I'm not in a position of leadership enough um, in my professional life where I am a part of these conversations. Um, I'm lucky to have a leadership team that really solicits feedback from the employees, um, but I'm I'm not a chief. <laughs> so I, I'm not at, at those tables, um, but I am the clergy advisory chair. And there was a lot of pressure um, on me as to say like, what are we doing in this moment? Um, and, and I took that really to heart. Um, and also, right, like you're saying, right, like you can't, you don't want to change it, right, institutionally to change a decision on the fly or like, right, like when you make a decision institutionally, like that's it. And you've got to like really stick to it. Um, whereas like a couple of weeks, a few weeks, I don't know, a month ago, I let my kids play on the playground on a Shabbat afternoon, right? There weren't any kids around. We walked past it. No one was there. Like whatever we played. Um, and then a couple weeks later, um, I knew there were a lot of cases in our community. Our community was having a, a COVID outbreak. Um, and that week I was like, we're not playing on the playground on Shabbat. Like maybe on Sunday, right? We can we can, we can can walk past the playground. Um, and on Sunday, if there aren't kids at the playground, we can, we can go to the playground on Sunday. But on Shabbat, where there's more likely to be more people there and we're having an outbreak, like we're not going. Um, because like... It's not right. Like, and I can, right. Like as a mom, I can make, I can change I can change my mind and I can make decisions and we can change, you know, what happens. Um, I don't want to say on the fly, that feels a little more like Lucy Lucy, but right. We can make educated decisions and risks and risk assessments. Um, and we can change them, um, more rapidly than institutional ones yeah. for sure. And having that understanding and holding in mind that every family is making those decisions for themselves all the time is also what makes us better leaders to have that understanding that people are constantly making those just different decisions all the time. And then collectively, you're just a city full of people making all those different decisions and changing their minds all the time. Uh, Knowing that that's what's happening out there is what makes a leader a great leader. So um, it's great to be cognizant of of, of that sort of changing shape of the way that you act and, and the other people act around you too. Um, you were describing the playground and like playground dynamics in your community. Um, what What is community to you right now? That's an excellent question. Um, and I don't know, honestly. So I mean, there's like multiple levels of what community is um, in this moment. So there is, right, there is still, right? Like we live in an area called Toko Hills. And Topo Hills is a community, right? Regardless of how much we are or are not feeling plugged into um, the people, our friends, the synagogues, um, we are affiliated with multiple synagogues and throughout the pandemic have um, done virtual events with multiple synagogues. 
um, in our neighborhood. Actually, that's been a cool part because um, the synagogues in our neighborhood are each very unique. Um, and there doesn't tend to be a lot of overlap um, amongst, right? We are, it's not a big shul hopping, right? Like, oh, one week you go here and another week you go there. Um, isn't really the vibe in this community. Um, but over the pandemic, it's felt much more low stakes um, to like drop in to a sisterhood event at another community to drop in for like a, a Moze Shabbat date night um, event at another, at another part of the community, right? That aren't sort of our home-based shul. Hmm. Um, and so that's been a cool sort of unifying factor, I think, of our like community in terms of like the physical place in which we live, right? And there is some sense of community there. Um, I think it's another community of like our school community, right? Like our school has, the, they've talked a lot this year um, about being a Kahila Kadosha, right? A holy community. Um, and they've really leaned into that also for like community norms and expectations around what masking looks like and what social distancing looks like, even when you're not at school. Um, so regardless of how I think, feel about masking in any specific situation, I do what the school says, right? Like we abide by what the school says because that's the community we've gotten into and we're going to follow along, right? Part of being, part of being, part of being part of a community is abiding by sort of the communal expectations, especially in a pandemic. Um, and then I think for me, like the third part of the community is a virtual community, right? There are a number of virtual communities that have been built over the course of the year, which have been really, really special to me. Um, and also like my Ravenet is sort of a virtual community. Um, the joy, one of the benefits for me of not being a pulpit rabbi is that people that want to connect to me do. Um, and so I've been able to, not that I've been able to, because the pandemic has normalized um, virtual community, it has lessened people's angst about having the ra their rabbi not be the person that they see on Shabbat because they're not seeing any rabbi on Shabbat. Um, so it feels more okay to people to reach out and say, hey, like, can you be my person? Um, which I've had people do over the course of this time as they've realized that like, they don't have to be tied to that, to that one figurehead. Um, I feel bad saying that to a pulpit rabbi. <laughs> um, you can be my people's person too. I, I give them permission if they're listening uh, to the podcast, if they have questions, <laughs> Robin, Melissa can be your rabbi too. Thanks. We'll share. Um, and it's just cool because what happens, what I wind up, tend to wind up finding is that the people that are reaching out to me are people in Orthodox spaces who, particularly women, who are feeling that there is not um, space for their voices, that there isn't space for their activism, for their passions. Um, and they want a rabbi who can hold them in that um, and can see sort of the, some of the tensions that will occur um, people with mental health issues that they're fighting with and trying to balance, right? People, and and that's hard. Um, and people being able to lean into that is really, really important. And it's, um, one of those, one of those, like, uh, there's like a phrase that I'm now forgetting that people have been using, but like the silver linings of COVID. Um, and I think one of them is that, that normalization of virtual community, um, and reaching out to people that aren't your, you know, immediate automatic natural go-tos, um, in order to find the people that are the right people for you. And that's, as rabbis and that's as friends, right? Really leaning into distance friendships and what, what that looks like and groups of people that you would not normally have 
have connected with. And I think that's really special. That's, um, that sounds like something you really want to take into post COVID. You know, I, I imagine that'll be a blessing if that can linger into, into post COVID. Is there anything else as we kind of wrap on our time together that you really hope either something that's special that's been invented within your family as a ritual or something else that you've found time to do or found within yourself in this era that you hope is here to stay even when we return almost to life as it was before? Um, I think that what I, I think that that's really it for me. It's really that um, the normalization of virtual community um, for some of the reasons I, I previously said, but also for people who can't access community in the same way people for whom getting to shul is really hard um for any number of reasons right that can be people who live far from a shul that they would want to go to right people who don't find that the place that they can get to is fitting for them people who are homebound for any number of reasons who have a difficult time get physically leaving their homes um people with chronic illnesses and mental mental illnesses um but there's so many, so many things that are happening in our world, which make it hard for people to, to connect and to plug into their, their proximal, um, places. Um, and so being able to really normalize that virtual connection, I think has been really special. Um, I do not personally benefit from, um, Zoom to Fila, but I do hope that that is something which also, which also lingers because for similar reasons, right? It just brings more people, more access um, and more opportunities to connect. And I think that that is so beautiful and so important. Um, and and being Zooming events in general, right? Just allowing more people to connect in, in ways that they can, um, right? I think, I think the hybrid model is here to stay. Um, I hope that people really are, in t- and our people do it with intention, right? That it's not just like, we throw up a screen or a camera in a corner and like call it a day, but that we really craft our programming and um, right? do programming and community education and community building is like where my, where my heart and soul really are um, professionally. And I just really want to challenge us all, I think, um, to, to think about what it looks like to do that with intentionality, with to intentionally bring people into a space who are not physically in the space um, and honor that that's uh, a perfectly um, awesome way to be part of community. Well, I'm grateful that virtual community has made it possible for the two of us to stay in touch over time. Who would have thought that these two kids from Beth to Fila, which is now, I think, a Korean church, but all, all good things. Um, who, who would have thought that we would have both wound up in our own, Rabbinets and connected through this thing called Facebook and other communities um, and talking together. Um, and please give my love to your family. And uh, I hope it's okay, but it would really, I would be remiss not to also invoke your mom's beautiful memory too. Yeah. The love that I have for your whole family and for the connections that we've been able to share um, in, in the lives that we have crafted for, um, for ourselves in this crazy, crazy world. Um, I really look forward, Rabbi Melissa, to the Torah that you put out there. It's, it's good stuff. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Are You Coming Back? Do you have someone you'd like to recommend for a conversation like this one? Someone who might have a fascinating personal perspective on returning to Jewish rhythms beyond the pandemic? Reach out to us at hchorney at tbala.org.